If you were to write down a list of things in your life that you've once loved but no longer love, uh, what would make your top five, do you think? You could uh, perhaps expand this list far and wide, maybe even types of foods that you used to love but you no longer love. Your uh, taste buds evolve over time. Uh, sometimes you used to like sweet things, you no longer like sweet things, uh, and so on. Maybe you used to like the taste of pop as a kid, but now can no longer bear it. Or maybe people even. There was somebody that you loved that you no longer love. And it may be a sad story, or it just may be a fact of what happens with uh, sometimes moving away, sometimes death, or whatever the case may be. Maybe you loved a sport that you no longer love, a television show that you no longer love. One of the great curses or blessings of moving to Canada at the age of eight was arriving in Port Alberni and having to live in a motel for a few months while my parents figured out what they were going to do with our lives in Canada. And I will confess that at about 7 o'clock in the morning, I would wake up and watch Inspector Gadget. And if you promise not to tell the morning people, uh, Care Bears. And I did like Beastly from Care Bears. Uh, and if you were to ask me as a young kid uh, your favorite TV shows, I would have said that and then added, uh, as I matured, Alvin and the Chipmunks. In fact, one day... At school, I got detention. I think it's the only time I ever got detention, and I was so upset because for half an hour, I had to put my head down, and I knew I would not make it in home, home in time for Alvin and the Chipmunks, which is kind of ironic when you think about Alvin. But uh, the point is, you love certain things in your life, and now if you were to uh, tell me I'm going to miss Care Bears or Inspector Gadget or Alvin and the Chipmunks, I would be like, well, that isn't a big deal. So what is it about things that we once apparently loved but no longer love? What is it about even a relationship where uh, it begins off with the uh, affections of so much love and then wanes over time? And as someone who does enough uh, pastoring and marriage counseling, I can tell you that sometimes relationships start out well but do not end well. Love seems to evaporate over time, grow cold, and so on. And I will say, if I can just get uh, some marriage counseling out of the way right now uh, for the next few minutes, uh, this is usually my opening uh, advice to people when two young people come in. All right, Dylan? Uh, here goes. There's a very small percentage of people who get married that seem to just have what I call an easy marriage. They seem so perfectly suited to each other. They don't have to work as hard as everyone else. It's just a good marriage. And God seems to bless some people where it is just easy. They are a very small percentage. There's also a very small percentage, and now I'm talking about Christians, where they really should never have got married. The writing was on the wall from the get-go. It was a bad idea. It shouldn't have happened. And it ends as one predicts. And then for the vast majority of us in between, you have to work to some extent. 
there are highs and lows, there are seasons where it's more difficult, there are times when there's more fights, there's times where there's less fights, and sometimes the less fights is actually when things aren't so good, and the times when there are more fights when things are actually quite good, and it's just a mystery of all sorts of antagonisms and joys and emotions and stuff, and that's most marriages. But the goal in those marriages is usually to cultivate greater love. At least one would hope. And I think the Christian walk with the Lord has a sort of analogy to the type of marriage where there needs to be a lot of work put in to make the marriage work well. I don't think it is necessarily easy for everyone to love the Lord from the beginning and the end in a way that is easy all the time where there's no fluctuations, where they always feel as though they have a great relationship with the Lord. I also think that by far the most Christians who truly are Christians don't suffer in the doldrums of really discontent and lack of affection to the Lord, though there may even be some of those. Most of us have to work at our relationship with the Lord, to love Him and to feel that love on a weekly basis yearly basis. So the sermon today is really geared towards those who would sit here and say, yes, I know what it is to love the Lord, but I recognize there are times in my life where my love uh, does grow cold at times, where I struggle, where I sometimes worry, why don't I feel so enamored with the forgiveness of sins that I had at one point in my life? Why don't I get so excited when somebody says your sins are forgiven? Why do I sit sometimes and hear a sermon and feel unmoved and why do I read God's word and don't feel the joys of what it is to be in communion with God and I think most of us sitting here know a little bit about that reality so what is the great mark of the Christian faith well it is to love God and to love man Christ says that the law and the prophets hang upon loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor Paul will say in Romans chapter 13, a great chapter on love, Owe no man anything except what? To love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. And love is a very beautiful affection because love binds us to people. It brings us into union with people. And it gives us a delight in the person that we love. And it causes us then to want to do good to that person. So there are what theologians call the three parts of love. The three parts of love are union. Love brings us into union. It may be marital union. It may be the union of friendship. It may be what is the Trinitarian union between the three persons and they are in union then there is a delight in that person. So when you love someone, you delight in them to some extent. And then, when you delight in someone, you want to do good for that person. You want to treat them well. And that is what it is to truly love. It is to have a type of union, whether brotherly or sisterly union, whether a father-son, father-daughter, mother-daughter, mother-son union, whatever union it may be, and you enjoy it, and you seek to do that person good. And that 
shows us that really the foundation of the Christian religion is love. Because in love, we were predestined for what? In Ephesians 1, for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In love, He made us His children so that as children, we might love God. And that is according to the purpose of His will. Now, when God loves us, it is a little bit different than when we love people. Martin Luther has one of the most famous statements on love in his Heidelberg Disputation in 1518. He says that God loves sinners, evil persons, fools, and weaklings in order to make them righteous, good, wise, and strong. And this is the glory of God's love. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. So when God loves sinners and fools and weaklings, that love then actually transforms them and makes them to be those He delights in. Whereas when we love, we typically look for things in people or things that we can enjoy. God doesn't have that with us. He doesn't look at us and say, ah, that person has so many excellent qualities, I will love them. He looks at all of us through His pure eyes of holiness and says, there is nothing in sinners that is lovable unless I make it to be so. And so, God saves us in order that His love might make us truly lovable, that He might delight in us. So remember when Jesus speaks to Peter, what is He concerned about with Peter? He's concerned that Peter loves Him. Simon, son of John, do you love Me more than these? Do you love Me? Do you love Me? Three times He asks, do you love Me? Because ultimately, that's what Jesus is concerned about with His disciples. Do we love Him? And Peter is able to say, Lord, You know that I love You. Now, was that love perfect? Was that love lacking something? Yes, His love was clearly lacking something. It was not perfect, but it was still love. It was still an honest statement Peter could make. Lord, You know that I love You. And we must ask ourselves the same thing. In fact, we sung about it earlier in the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That is a commentary on Matthew chapter 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It demands everything. Now, what are the symptoms then of our love waning? What about the question I asked earlier? What is something that you used to love that you don't love anymore? Whether it is food, whether it is a person, what were the symptoms of you losing that love? Of that love growing cold? And when it comes to God, it is quite a complex thing of our love waning when it seems to grow cold. And there are Many, many reasons. I'm not planning to give you all of them tonight. But I do want to get at the heart 
of a few of these things. The first is that we become discontent with God's providence in our life, that we don't like how our life is unfolding. We maybe find ourselves in a situation where we think we deserve better than what we got, or we aren't succeeding in the way that we had hoped. And because we have had a partly faulty view of God who is there to bless us and give us success, when things don't go according to how we thought they should go, we do not love Him as we should. But then something goes well for us and then we say, oh Lord, I thank You so much. I love You because our love is very much based upon God's providence and how we determine it should be for us. I was speaking to a man at a soccer field the other day and we were just delighting in the great conversation that really demands a lot of us when we talk to people, the weather. And I said, well, isn't this wonderful? A soccer tournament, the national championships, and look at this great weather. And somehow I... Uh, you know, commended the Lord for it. And he says, oh no, I don't believe in the Lord. And then he says, because he's not very nice to me. He's not very nice to me. Isn't that interesting that he doesn't believe in someone he is claiming is not nice to him? But it really struck me, he's not very nice to me. He's discontent with how his life has gone, and because he doesn't like the way he's been treated, he then finds reasons not to love God. Well, Christians can sometimes be like that. We can find time to sing and dance and celebrate the Lord's goodness when we feel God is being good to us. But when we don't feel God is being good to us, when there is what is a frowning providence, we sometimes react in a way that betrays our godliness. It shows a lack of humility because we think we deserve better. And if you don't believe me, look at the Israelites in the Old Testament. In the book of Numbers, the murmuring over God's providence in their life, their dissatisfaction with how He ordered their lives. There's another symptom of love waning, and that is when we stop delighting in God's people. So very often when you want to see whether somebody loves the Lord, you will see there is always an organic connection between our love for God and our love for His people. That is why in Matthew 22, they are connected. Remember what they asked Him. They asked him, what is the great commandment singular in the law? And Jesus actually answers that. He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and in other translations and other passages, your strength. This is the first and great commandment. But did he need to say verse 39? Couldn't he have stopped there and just said, there's the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. But you see, he doesn't stop there. He says, the second, which was not asked of him, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, 
So they ask for the commandment singular. He gives two commandments. Now, was he answering the question as they asked? In one sense, yes. Because how do you know if somebody actually loves the Lord when they love also his people and their fellow man? And so one of the obvious symptoms of somebody who is starting to wane in their love for the Lord is they start to wane also in their love for God's people. Octavius Winslow, who has written a great book on backsliding, I've quoted him before, but he said, it is true, the picture, he's speaking of fellow believers, may be but an imperfect copy. The outline may be but faintly drawn. There may be shades we cannot approve of, speaking of fellow believers. Yet, recognizing in the work the hand of the Spirit and in the outline some resemblance to Jesus, whom our souls admire and love, we must feel a drawing out of our holiest affections towards the object. That is to say, your love for God is very often monitored by your love for his people. That is why when Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Peter has to answer that in relation to what? Feed my sheep. He doesn't just get to say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you as an abstract concept, but I love you in the context of feeding your sheep. So one principle of biblical interpretation is very often the vertical, how we claim to love God is measured by the horizontal, how we treat our fellow human being. So in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus returns and they say, Lord, when did we see you thirsty? When did we see you hungry? What was the answer? Whatever you did to the least of one of these, you did to me. The vertical is measured by the horizontal. So how much do you delight in God's people? And that's one of the great gifts that you can receive as a Christian delighting in God's people. I went to Philadelphia this last week. And people ask, how was your trip to Philadelphia? Very nice of them to ask. And if I'm honest, and some of you, I think, can testify to this. I know Macy can uh, today. Um, stand up and yell at me if I'm lying, please. Uh, it will help those who've had turkey today to perk up themselves. Um, how was your trip to Philadelphia? I says, well, you know, one of the best things about going was... Uh, when I was a young man, I went with Barb and some friends, and we went down to New Jersey to hear Albert Martin preach, and we drove all the way from New Brunswick down to New Jersey, and then we drove to Philadelphia to see one of my uh, friends, and we did like a road trip of uh, Christian uh, fanboy and fangirl, uh, but I mean, there's worse things you can do, and I was able to stay at a house, uh, and at the house, there were these young kids there, and I remember going to the garden to play soccer with the boy, and there was these young girls there, and we had such a wonderful time, and then I had another chance to stay at this house on my own as I was passing through New Jersey on a flight once, and lo and behold, in Philadelphia, I'm preaching at a conference, and this young lady comes up to me, and immediately I recognize her as the young lady who about 20 years ago I stayed at her house. 
where she's serving the Lord now in Philadelphia. And then I go down the street the next day and I get to see a young man where I lived in the house of my professor in South Africa at seminary. And there was a young man I used to babysit. I used to do PE class with him and uh, teach him. And he was there and I got to see him. And I got to see so many friends from years and years ago, decades where it was as though we hadn't been apart for more than 10 minutes. And that's something that the Christian faith can offer that is beyond just friendship. It is the connection that you can have based upon the gospel, based upon the fact that we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so don't underemphasize ever in your life the preciousness of Christian fellowship and what that may mean, not only now, but in the future. There are going to be occasions for everyone here where, Lord willing, 20 years from now, you're going to bump into people from this church. Maybe you've had to move away. Maybe something else has happened. And it will be as though you have never been apart. But when that decay starts to happen, that is a sign of our lack of love for God. Now, what are the causes of this? Well, one of the causes of our decay in our love for God is our love for the world. That will always be the great temptation. Octavius Winslow says that worldly encroachment is a fruitful cause, but no two affections can be more opposite and antagonist than the love to God and love to the world. It's impossible that they can both exist with equal force in the same breast. The one or the other must be supreme. They cannot occupy the same throne. That is why John will say, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So when Jesus is saying, The great commandment is to love the Lord your God, we are told elsewhere that the love of the world will draw you from that. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. But here's what you need to remember why it is foolish to love the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other words, the love of the world takes us away from the love of God. But in order to counter that, we need to remember that the love of the world is passing. It's futile. It ends nowhere. Paul says, Demas, we read this earlier, Demas, in love with what? In love with the present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Can we say that Demas is someone who really loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength? No. His desertion of Paul was a lack of love for God. And why did he have a lack of love for God? Because he loved the world, Paul said. But what's the context? The context in verses 6 to 8 tells us that the solution to loving the world is an eternal perspective. Just as John says, so Paul says, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, 
will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved, loved His appearing. You love the world or you love God. How do you make God the winner? How do you allow God to occupy the throne in your heart? You have to remember that what God can offer you is eternal and lasting, and what the world can offer you is temporary and fading. And that is the great struggle of the Christian life, is to really believe that it is better, like Moses, to suffer with the people of God than to have the pleasures of Egypt, the pleasures of sin that ultimately spoil and ruin. That is why when you could probably find this on YouTube, that marshmallow uh, tests they do with children in a room where they leave a marshmallow on the plate and they go out for a period of time and they say, listen, if you do not eat this marshmallow and when we come back, that marshmallow is still there, you can have two marshmallows. And they fix the camera on the children and they go through agony. They look at it. They smell it. They lick it. They start to like touch it a little bit. And then one time a kid just, just says, stuff this and eats it. Now, that instinct is in all of us. Immediate gratification, immediate satisfaction. But love of God orders our affections. It keeps us sober-minded and helps us to look to the prize that is awaiting us. But then there is another reason, and it is Christ's love constrains us. Remember, Paul writes to the Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for whom their sake died and was raised. How do you love God? You love God in light of Christ dying for you dying for your sins, being raised again for your justification and the promise of eternal life. Christ's love is to constrain you. But why doesn't Christ's love constrain us? Why is it that we are not more enamored with the forgiveness of sins? Why is it that the resurrection doesn't constrain us in our love for Christ? Why do we grow lukewarm? And that's very often we don't really believe our sins are that bad and that many. We don't really believe that our sins are worthy of damnation. And so, because we have such a low view of sin, we, in essence, minimize what Christ has done. We would never admit to that, but the way in which we live is we don't appreciate the death of Christ because we don't actually appreciate how bad our sins are and how many they are. And so we're to repent for that. Let me conclude with Christ speaking to the church in Ephesus. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first to an entire church. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And what is the solution? What does he ask them to do? Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Their problem was a lack of love for Christ and for His people. And He says, repent. 
Remember God's mercies towards you. Meditate upon them. Remember the good that you receive from Him daily. Remember all of the times He could have punished you so severely but was gentle with you. Remember the lengths God has gone to save you. Remember what God has saved you from and remember where God is taking you. And if you can do nothing else, you can at least say, I'm sorry. I wish I loved you more. Perhaps you understand something of that where you simply don't know what else to say except I wish I loved you more. And I believe that that type of repentance is actually the very best thing you can do for God to open up your heart to the love that He allows in that you have closed up by refusing to acknowledge your lack of love. Remember the man who said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You can also say, Lord, I love you. Help my lack of love for you. And he will do so. Because why would he not want to give you a love for God when that is the thing that he commands? Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for your gift of love to us. And we pray that we may love you more as we repent for our lack of love and sometimes wonder why we do not love you more, we ask simply that you will open our hearts to a greater affection and that the Spirit will do his work in our souls to make us love Christ and love God, which is eternal life. Amen.